1: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts.
0: Good afternoon. Welcome. It is a Wednesday, the ninth day of September, and good to have you on board As uh, we spend some commute time together or uh, your trip from the (laughs) spare bedroom into the uh, kitchen, whatever it might be with your commute here on this edition of Lifeline and uh, privilege that you've decided to spend some time with us today. We've got a lot that we're going to go through on today's program, but I I want to begin with what's been happening all around us here in the San Francisco Bay Area. If you are listening uh, remotely via the internet, this might be news to you, but for the rest of us, wow, Uh, we woke up this morning to smoke and ash blanketing the entire San Francisco Bay Area. I I looked out the window for a moment and almost thought, did I go to sleep and, and like pass out for 20 something hours because it 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 either seems to me that the day is ending or um if if it's if it's beginning why is it looking like an orange sun the way we would see in a typical california sunset well of course that uh, brownish orange glow that appeared this morning before all of our eyes has turned out to be the combination of the deadly wildfire smoke and ash and of course um, all of that choking the air Blocking out the sun, as I mentioned, and causing even streetlights to stay on, as they have in my own neighborhood throughout the day. And um, you would be amiss if you didn't take the moment to write, Wash me in the window of a car with the ash so deep. Let me give you an update as to where we stand so far. 2,277,000 acres have been burned, with a total of 7,606 separate fires or incidents, as CAL FIRE refers to them. Tragically, more than 4,265 structures have been destroyed, and more tragic still, there have been eight fatalities. Now, the most significant blaze, and the one that is creating the bulk of the ash we find here in the Bay Area, is the Bear Fire. This just seemingly exploded overnight, more than 260,000 acres now fully involved. The quickly advancing flames of the Bear Fire that basically runs along the corridor of Highway 162 um, has destroyed homes in both Bear Creek and along Bald Creek Road, forcing a lot of residents there to escape with um, basically the clothes on their back. A wildfire that currently is burning in the Plumas National Forest Um, is currently one that has mandatory evacuation orders in place in Plumas and parts of Butte and Yuba counties. So far, that fire there has grown to more than 260,000 acres, as I mentioned a moment ago, and containment has dropped now from what had been 51% to just 38%, much of this being fueled by winds up to 45 miles an hour, and the fire at this point, have been consuming nearly a 1,000 acres every 30 minutes. Now, of course, sadly for folks up in the Paradise area, uh, this is all too familiar as it seems to be echoing the tragedy of the devastating 2018 campfire, which claimed 85 lives in both Paradise and neighboring communities what you need to know at this moment is that evacuation warnings have been issued in Plumas County for the towns of Meadow Valley, Belden, as well as the Oregon House and Dobbins region of Buba County. That, of course, north of Marysville Road, Alameda County Fire announced that units are working the CZU lightning complex fire are now heading north to give some needed relief to the overwhelmed firefighters dealing with the North Complex fire. Meanwhile, along the uh, northern border of California with Oregon, they are experiencing their own problems there with what the governor is saying is unprecedented fire and significant damage and devastating consequences across the entire state of Oregon. They are predicting significant loss of both property and life, in one of the worst wildfires in Oregon's history. And I won't take the time to go into all the details as to where that is burning. Just suffice it to say, uh, the important warning is, be safe, stay indoors as much as you possibly can. I want to remind you that if you're breathing outside without a mask, number one, COVID-19, hello. And number two, what you're breathing in that particulate matter is a combination of ash from burnt wood, rubber, plastics, and all sorts of chemicals that are the byproduct of houses and automobiles and buildings catching on fire. So it is not safe for anyone to breathe. If you're somebody like myself that uh, deals with allergies or perhaps you have asthma, it's worse yet. But meanwhile, for all of us, a word of caution, stay indoors, do not go outside without a breathing apparatus, without a mask. And by all means, as we've seen the fire season stretch miserably into what had been typically September, October, now apparently August, September, October, be extra vigilant, be extra cautious, don't do foolish things. You don't need to burn forests down in the process of announcing the gender of your baby, which is what happened tragically in the Fresno fire that's consumed hundreds of thousands of acres. Bonfires, not happening. And of course, every means by which you may spare the air by limiting automobile trips, don't mow the lawn, don't start uh, engines unless you absolutely need to, for transportation purposes, because right now we are facing one of the longest-running, spare-the-air, critical alerts that we have seen in Bay Area history. So a word of warning to the wise and uh, to the rest. Time to get a little wiser. All right, let's, uh, let's turn a corner and deal with another issue here, shall we? A bit of history, perhaps, to put some things in perspective. If I describe for you someone that was a rich New Yorker, who never really held an elected political position in his life, and then suddenly was thrust to the highest office in America, that of President of the United States, with a background in machine politics, not very welcome to that position as President. Well, if I describe that person to you, uh, <laughs> you're going to jump to the wrong conclusion, because it's not who you think. It is, in fact, an accurate description in many respects of the beginnings of the presidency of the 21st President of the United States, serving from 1881 to 1885. He had been Vice President for a very short time under James Garfield, and then was suddenly thrust into the presidency after Garfield was assassinated just four months into his term. Talking about the life, the times, the influence of President Chester A. Arthur, the Accidental President, joining us is the author and historian, John Pafford. And John, great to have you with us.
1: Thank you, my pleasure. You
0: know, when I first read the, the the opening remarks in your book, I thought, well, this is interesting. He's he's writing a book about the presidency of um, our current president. And then, much to the surprise, perhaps of <laughs> even listeners, thought, wait a minute, uh this is uh, this is sort of a, an interesting bit of history regarding a president that as you talk about in the book really wasn't all that popular going in but over the course of four years was very successful at not only shifting perception of him but also leaving quite frankly a pretty impressive indelible mark on the future of the presidency and the nation.
1: I I agree obviously since I wrote the book Uh, yes a very very intriguing individual We've had 44 different people who have served as President of the United States. Uh, technically, uh, Grover, Grover Cleveland counts for two. Uh, he was President, then he was defeated, then he was elected again. One person, but counts for two presidencies. So we've had 44 individuals who have served. And I think that clearly, of all of them, Chester Arthur would be the most unexpected to have ever served as president of the United States.
0: Talk to us a bit about what what particularly about him caught your attention uh, to profile uh, this man, his life, and his presidency.
1: What has intrigued me is finding individuals in history who did good things, who were significant, who have admirable qualities, but were not well-known for different reasons. And, of course, to some extent, everyone who has served as President of the United States is at least known by name. But about a good many of these presidents, we really know very little. About some of them, frankly, there's not a great deal that's that commendable or that fascinating. But about some individuals, yes, there is something which is worth knowing. So I did a previous biography, for example, of Grover Cleveland, I'm working on one now on William Henry Harrison. Now, in terms of Chester Arthur, you're right. As you mentioned earlier, he had never served in any elected position. That makes it very surprising that he was on the ticket with Garfield. Uh, Normally, when you have somebody who is going to succeed uh, to the presidency, that person has uh, been a senator, a governor, or a very... Powerful uh, general, George Washington, for example, um, uh, or Dwight Eisenhower, were very successful as generals. Ulysses grant. But Arthur uh, had served only in the state of New York as an upper-level machine politician. He started off very impressively in life. He uh, started college at the age of 15. Uh, back in the 19th century, uh, we moved people along quicker. Uh, they matured faster. He started college, Union College in upstate New York at the age of 15, graduated in three years, skipping year, and graduated Phi Beta Kappa. Uh, then he did some teaching, studied law, got into law, went into politics in New York while practicing law. In 1854, he became very well-known nationally for taking the case involving Lizzie Jennings, who was a black schoolteacher uh, in New York City. She'd been thrown off a New York City streetcar that was reserved for whites only. Uh, Arthur took her case, arguing she had done nothing wrong. Uh, her being expelled from the streetcar was unwarranted. The jury agreed. Awarded her two hundred fifty dollars damages, and then later that year, New York City desegregated all public transportation. So the tide of freedom in the United States was rising slowly but perceptibly, and that's very significant. That as a result of this case, the the, uh, the segregation of public transportation in New York was forbidden. So he's off to a good start. Then he got caught up in machine politics in New York. Uh, He became very successful as an upper-level member of the Roscoe Conkling organization, Um, and he was making money, but again, the position he held was as collector of the Port of New York. That's significant since about 75% of all American tariff duties were collected there, and Arthur did very well financially, got a good salary, and he got a percentage of the fees that were charged to shippers who didn't pay the correct tariff. But uh, he's not he's percy- part of the machine, the Conkling machine. he's not personally a crook. I know words, people aren't bribing him. Uh, he's not dipping his hand into the public kill. But he's definitely part of the machine, and everyone who worked under him in the Port of New York was expected to give between 2% and 5% of salaries to the organization. So he was part of the machine. So there he is, a machine politician, upper level, and then history is going to move.
0: And uh, move quite quickly, it did. Let's pause on that point. We're going to move ourselves to a quick update on traffic. Best-selling author, historian John Pafford is with us today. He's got a new book out called Chester A. Arthur, The Accidental President, newly published by Regnery History. And you can, of course, get the book through The Usual Suspects, Amazon.com, find it at local bookstores, and, of course, also order it directly through Regnery Press. We'll take this brief timeout come back to our look at The Accidental President as this edition of Lifeline continues. Get a look at traffic now, 520.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: We're visiting with historian and best-selling author John Paffer. John is the author of a new book called Chester A. Arthur, The Accidental President, newly published by Regnery History. And what's, what's interesting about this tale John, as you were alluding to before the break, um, he he kind of ascended to the presidency in, in a um, rare situation, perhaps not as rare as it should be, but he, he became president after uh, the president at the time, um, James Garfield, was assassinated. Um, he kind of stepped into the role as VP, um, more almost in kind of a broker deal, as I understand it, to keep peace within the Republican Party. He was not very well trusted when he went in, even as VP, because of his deep involvement in uh, the political machine in New York. And I'm sure that everybody outside of the city of New York looked at him with a bit of a jaundice eye. But ironically, once he ascended to the presidency, again, through the, the tragic assassination of James Garfield, he managed to not only turn around the way people perceived him, but leave a pretty significant mark on history. Tell us about that. Well, this is very unusual
1: for somebody to have the background that he did and then turn out to be honest, to be filled with integrity and to do constructive things as president. Uh that's very unusual and I would say you, you normally don't try you don't depend on that that you're going to elect somebody who's got a machine background uh... not terribly impressive in terms of honor and integrity and assume that the good is going to come out he stepped in as president and he's an entirely different type of person it's as if he just grew Re- uh, understanding now that he is president of the united states and uh, he definitely grew into that he accomplished a number of very impressive things during his short time as president by the way his, his health is going to give way during his presidency. After he'd been president for about a year, he was diagnosed with Bright's disease. That's a kidney ailment. At that time, it was 100% fatal, and he lived less than two years after he left the presidency. So his uh, endurance was definitely going down. But also, too, here he was, a machine politician from New York, Put on the ticket with Garfield because the Republicans needed New York State in order to win the presidency. And it worked. Uh, Garfield was significant in delivering New York. Had the Republicans not won New York, the Democrats would have won the presidency in 1880. But Garfield did his job, and the Republicans are now in office. Uh, he was responsible uh, for doing a good many good things, but he still was distrusted by a lot of the good government republicans because of his background with the new york machine and the machine uh, politicians didn't like him because they regarded him as having abandoned them so he really had a uh, uh, no real solid base but what he did just to mention a few things and then we get into any details you want to on them but he was responsible, one, for reviving the Navy. The U.S. Navy, at the end of the Civil War, was number two in the world. But then as happened so often. In times of peace, we Americans don't like to spend any money on the armed forces. So the American Navy sank very far down and was uh, very decrepit. Uh, Garth, uh, Arthur was the one responsible for starting that revival of the Navy and he was very significant in doing that and within a few years the united states navy is going to be the best in the world he also was responsible for civil service reform uh... this is interesting for an old machine politician but he was very very strongly supportive of the pendleton act which brought in the beginnings of civil service That the routine government uh, officials would not change every time a new administration came in that there would be people who would continue in their routine position so there was continuity he also strongly supported the idea of a central american canal he was ahead of his time there uh... he supported a rivers and harbors act at that time we didn't have of course the taxation we have today So there wasn't the pork barrel spending there is today, but there was pork barrel spending. And so just between 1875 and 1882, spending for rivers and harbors, some of that was essential, of course, obviously, but a lot of it was just pork stuff. From 1882, uh, uh, the, uh, the spending went up from $6 million to over $18 million, in just about not even 10 years. Uh, so he was also for sound money, the gold standard, not for this idea that we're going to print more money, pump it into circulation, and everyone will be better off. So he did things which were very substantial and very commendable.
0: I understand too that that in addition to some of those high water marks that you just mentioned, Uh, he had an important hand in not only shaping foreign affairs, but also in helping early on to sort of uh, mold and bring a greater sense of, I don't know, we'll call it fairness or parity to U.S. immigration policy.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, That was particularly dealing with uh, the uh, admission of Chinese as immigrants into this country uh a lot of Ch- the initially the chinese who first came over here were merchants, uh hotel and restaurant owners, they were skilled workers. Then when the railroad came in, we got a lot of low-skilled chinese coming in uh, who then stayed in this country after the railroad was finished across the country and they would work for less than would americans. That's a pretty familiar uh theme in american history, immigrants who work for less than Native Americans, and so there was a push uh, to keep the Chinese out. And he vetoed a bill that was to keep them out for twenty years. He did have to uh, do some dealing with political reality. He could get it. He got it down to ten years—a compromise uh, that, after ten years, would uh, be more open. But he was definitely not a racist, as I mentioned in reference to the Lizzie Jennings case. Uh, He wasn't a racist, and uh, he did a good job as president in terms of taking constructive stands and pushing through, even though his health was failing, particularly over the last year and a half of his administration.
0: Chester Arthur, a president who... uh eventually came became president uh, shortly after, again, the assassination of Garfield. Uh, a man who came into office not very well trusted or respected, perhaps outside of New York Party politics, and in the end left a, an important mark on not just America, but on his presidency. A look at Chester A. Arthur. The Accidental President, newly published by Regnery History. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. This author has been our guest on this segment of Lifeline, bestselling author John Pafford. John, thanks so much for the time. 5.32 Bye, from KFAX. Let's get a look at traffic. And now back
1: to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: I want to turn to a serious topic here, and I think one timely in light of the stresses that we're all feeling these days. What with COVID-19, the horrific loss of life, we're reaching numbers that no one would have imagined would be possible for a medical system healthcare system such as we have in America and then you couple that with what we're contending with here locally with the devastating fires untold loss of property even loss of life and the amount of pressure that all these elements together can can bring to bear can can trigger people that are perhaps already fragile already on the edge whether it's somebody that is dealing with the challenge of a substance abuse, maybe some emotional challenges going on within their relationships, whatever it might be. Oftentimes, these issues, along with depression, can trigger people to make very bad decisions, irreversible decisions. The month of September is Suicide Awareness and Prevention Month, and we deal with this Heavy topic because so many people, as I mentioned, um, struggle with thoughts of ending it. Um, perhaps find circumstances in life where they feel as if there's no easy or good way out. And so perhaps to save themselves further pain and maybe even in a misplaced understanding of how they can help others, uh, their loved ones from avoiding pain, make some very bad decisions. My guest tonight has a little bit of a a dissimilar circumstance um, in terms of what happened in her family, but poignant nevertheless to the point of how devastating suicide can be, and it's beyond just the obvious. It's not just the loss of the person, but the impact that leaves on those that are left behind and oftentimes the devastation emotionally that can be caused to loved ones um can under extreme circumstances be very significant. Melanie Pickett joins us now. Melanie, tell us a bit about your story, as I mentioned. Your your story certainly isn't a very typical one, but I think there's important lessons in your family's experience that we all can learn from. Walk us through first a little bit about what happened in your marriage that I understand went about 15 years to a man that was not only abusive and obviously dealing with with some demons, um, but, but ultimately not only succeeded in taking his own life, but that was only after I understand he had even threatened yours.
2: Yes. Um, he had been abusive for most of our marriage, and you're correct, it was about 15 years, and we have two children. So at the time you're referencing, my children were 9 and 13, so very young. Uh, he had some clear mental health issues. He himself was abused as a child, so I'm sure that contributed to him becoming an abuser. Um, certainly not everyone who's abused becomes abusive, but he didn't have any familial support, no no counseling to deal with that. So everything just got, you know, internalized. And I believe as an adult came out in the form of abuse. So he had some rage issues um, at the time of his suicide. He, um, leading up to it, he was diabetic, severely diabetic, wasn't handling that at all. So, you know, there was the perfect storm of things that led to him going into a downward spiral. He wasn't living in our home at the time. It was a very short time. He'd been out of the home, but was very erratic in his behavior. Um, wasn't even supposed to be in town. I was, I took my kids to school and came back and unbeknownst to me, he was in our home with a gun. Um, he had hidden his vehicle. I had no clue. Just the time I got in was too late. He, um, he tied my hand, You know, again, this was at gunpoint. He very, uh, very viciously sexually assaulted me, and then he he took his own life with that gun. So essentially, I was forced to witness his death as well.
0: Now, were you separated at the time? You mentioned that you were surprised to find him in the house.
2: I was. It. We weren't, I mean, I'm in Michigan. There's no legal separation. It was kind of a limbo at best. He had just walked out one day and um there was no period to the end of that sentence. We weren't, um he was threatening divorce. And, you know, I was just kind of in a state of, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't, you know, so it was kind of a limbo. But yeah, he was staying with friends at the time. So, uh so, strange would give the word. <laughs>
0: What what you are describing seems to be a circumstance that was very intentional in terms of his actions. Uh, you know, I suppose people are going to say, well, Craig, the obvious is that you're... Yeah, big award for stating the obvious there, that uh, there's always a degree to which suicide has some pre-planning. But in order to pull that off and do so in your family home with you present almost seems as if there was something else going on there too, as opposed to somebody who just decides, you know, I'm going to go off to a bridge somewhere.
2: Yeah. You know, and the, we'll never have those perfect answers of, you know, I've gone over it a thousand times. Like, when did he decide this? You know, he obviously had some intentions because he hit his vehicle. You know, he didn't want me to be able to leave or have any indication you know why then why at all <laughs> you know um I, you know i can only guess at things of you know i i believe now that he had a lot of self-loathing he probably had a lot of shame for you know for his childhood and the way he had treated me and i like you had said in uh, in your introduction you know people are dealing with a lot of demons so to speak and i believe he had plenty you know I, he loved the lord but um, I think just a series of things just led him down that descent, so to speak. And I feel like he, he must have felt that he was at the point of no return or um, something that you mentioned, I suspected as well, is that maybe he felt the world was better off without him. And, you know, well, I can only speculate because even though I witnessed it, he gave me zero clues. He didn't really speak. He didn't, you know, it was like he was,
0: we checked out. And of course, what's ironic about this is the the sense that uh, you know th- there's always that feeling of, of desperation and despair and at the end of one's rope. Um, I think all of that is generally, from a psychological standpoint, expected to accompany the motivation by. Behind why one decides to take their own life, but I have to wonder too. And, and forgive me, uh, Melanie, if this is if this is an indelicate question. But I have to wonder in the fashion and manner in which he decided to take his life, to engage in this horrifically selfish act. Uh, if there wasn't maybe some playing out of of resentment and anger there, knowing the potential trauma that it would cause you and we haven't mentioned it yet and your children.
2: Yes. Um, And, you know, being an abuser, you know, there's a lot of control involved in that. I think people who are abusers control their end game and what maybe that was his final act of control was doing that to me physically, you know, harming me. Um, you know, I, I hadn't kicked him out. I hadn't, you know, implied or asked for a divorce, but that's kind of how he acted was, you know, you're right, angry towards me, but I, I don't know why really. And I'll never probably have that answer, but it was very much angry, hateful. Um, but I really don't know why. I spend a couple
0: of more minutes with us if you can, Melanie. I want to kind of sure. talk through uh, some more details here because there's there's an important message, I think, that uh, that people need to hear, not only in terms of understanding what the warning signs can be that will be different from everyone, and I also want to put in the disclaimer that I understand there are some circumstances where even as we try to work through a sense of guilt and what if and if I'd only... But sometimes there are no warning signs. Sometimes things don't make sense until well after the fact, and you're able to sort of slowly put the pieces of the puzzle together that the picture emerges. But at the time, in the moment, oftentimes uh, it it escapes you, and it's not because you're insensitive or not looking for them. They're just simply not there. With me is Melanie Pickett, as I mentioned. Melanie, um, here in, in the month of September, is joining us to talk about not just suicide awareness but suicide prevention and that even for the person who feels so desperate that life is so hopeless there is still a ray of hope we just know we need to know how to extend that that sense of encouragement to those that are feeling as if there's just no other choice let's take a brief time out we'll come back to more of our conversation lifeline continues after this update on traffic
1: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: We're visiting today with mother, wife, and writer Melanie Pickett. She survived, as we mentioned earlier, a 15-year-long abusive marriage to a man that not only attempted at one point to take her life, but eventually took his own and and right in front of her. And Melanie, the... (sighs) even though I understand it was a painful marriage relationship, it was a strained relationship, you were already separated at the time that this happened, but nevertheless, going through an experience like that uh, must have been a horrifying one, and and worse still, because of the complication of the impact on your children. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, definitely. I would say, of course, it was traumatic for me because I witnessed it, but Um, it it was worse for my kids and worse for me because it hurt my kids. Um, they were nine and 13 at the time. And, uh, you know, you have that heart head battle where your head logically knows that he probably didn't sit in inventory, all of the many things that he was going to miss over the next decades of their lives, but still their hearts feel like he just opted out of their lives. Um. You know, so it was traumatizing for them to know that, you know, the manner in which he left this world. So, um, you know, we had to leave our home. You know, this happened in our home, so we would never spend another night there. It was just too hard for us to be there. So immediately they lose their, their dad. They lose their home. Um, you know, just everything in their lives changed, you know, instantly. We were very blessed to have, um, my, siblings and, um, a wonderful church family that just kind of enveloped us in this bubble, um, for, you know, a few months to get us settled in a new home and, you know, show up for my kids to games and things like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was the three of us and I had two very heartbroken and sometimes angry kids trying to sort through all of this. And you know we're a oh, decade later, and they're both young adults, but um, you know they're still affected. You know every good thing that happens in their life, he is not there for. There's always going to be that empty chair that he should be sitting in, from their perspective. So um, this is not something that's ever they're ever going to get over. You know. Uh, early on when it happened, you know, I, I remember, whether they do or not, I remember kneeling in front of them and looking them in the eyes and saying, you know, this is really bad. What happened to us is really bad, but we're going to get through this, and this is not going to be a reason for us not to do well. You know, we are going to, you know, move ahead. God is going to help us, you know, and He has never left us. And, you know, they have grown up to be amazing, wonderful young adults and advocates. And, um, but, you know, this is always going to hurt them. One thing that I feel like God gave me the wisdom was to, um, see that they're two very different people. So I allowed them to grieve and remember him on their own terms, whether that means they visit the cemetery or they don't, or one does, one doesn't, one wants to talk about him, One doesn't, you know, it's, they're two different people, and they needed to remember him and grieve in the way that was best and healthiest for them. So, of course, I immediately got them and myself into therapy, which was incredibly important. I am a huge advocate for therapy. You know, find a good biblical therapist to walk you through these things. And, um, you know, and still, they go to therapy off and on because I anticipated... And I fully support that. You know, as they get older, they're going to um, see this in a different light. They're not going to see it through nine-year-old eyes. They're going to see it through 16-year-old eyes or 25-year-old eyes and have different questions and different things that they need to come to terms with. So, um, you know, but again, it, it was very difficult. And uh, there are times now, even this many years later, when it's just as hard as the first day for them.
0: And that's understandable, and I think you very wisely point out the sort of shifting of the way one sees this and understands this and relates to this, and it's going to mean different things at different times. A a, a child who's lost a parent to something like this at the age of, you know, 8 or 10 or 12 is probably not thinking about the fact that someday their children his grandchildren will never know their grandfather, and yet when you reach the age where uh, you're in a relationship and maybe contemplating marriage or have married and and now contemplating children, where suddenly those are issues that didn't present themselves earlier that now are suddenly here and need to be dealt with. In the remaining time that we have today, Melanie, walk us through, if you would, Uh, I, I mentioned earlier some of the challenges in relationship to warning signs but are are there some general ones that we can sort of be looking for if we begin to see a change in behavior of a loved one?
2: Absolutely. You know, obviously depression, anger, withdrawing from people or activities they used to enjoy. Um, You know, certainly if they're making any different plans or starting to get their their house in order, so to speak, you know, without any other reasons to do that, you know. Um, You know, there are just so many things that any real change in behavior that isn't positive or is atypical for them. And, you know, this year especially, it's 2020. So, I mean, it's been hard on everyone. So, um, you know, I just want to encourage anybody that if you feel like you're struggling or you have a loved one that is, you know, don't let the financial effects of 2020 to stop anyone from getting that help that they need and reaching out. And, you know, we need, we who are in a good mental health place need to reach out to our, to our friends, our Facebook friends, you know, whoever, and be that, um, be that encourager for others, you know, and, and kind of, Like there's a mean, you know, check on your strong friends. You know, even if somebody appears to be strong, we don't know what's going on inside their head or behind closed doors. So we really just need to kind of look out for each other and uh, just really be in tune and pay attention to those closest to us and watch out for any of those signs.
0: And, and certainly, as you point out, especially now, because we're all distracted with the own challenges that we're dealing with in relationship to COVID and, and other things going on in life. And so it, it, it's easy, perhaps, in the midst of looking at our own circumstances and, and trying to figure out how we feel to perhaps miss how someone near us is feeling and maybe right. the ways in which they're facing challenges that we are unaware of. There are resources available out there, and and I want to mention for somebody that may be eavesdropping on this conversation right now, um, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is available to you 24 hours a day by calling 800-273-TALK. That's 800-273-TALK. Completely confidential. A place where you can literally find an ear uh, that's willing to, to listen to what you're dealing with it's critically important that in that moment of crisis you reach out and you get help and then to um, on the back side of this horrific experience melanie uh, you mentioned about the need for um, therapy and and undoubtedly ongoing therapy um, and I, i'm wondering in terms of how important was support from other resources like other family members and the church in terms of helping both you and your children um, sort of manage as best as possible the early stages of this experience.
2: Oh yeah, that our church was a lifeline. I mean, literally, that day, within a couple hours of this happening, our pastor was on the scene, so to speak. He went with my brother, one of my brothers, to pick my kids up from school. I mean, our church family just was literally the hands and feet. They helped us move our house. They helped us. Move into another one, you know, like I said, they just were, you know, scripture come to life for us. Um, taking just something as simple as just picking my kids up and taking them for ice cream, you know, distracts them, makes them feel loved. I mean, it was the little things was a big thing, you know, it, it was so important. Family, friends, church family, it, they were a lifeline for us in the months following. Definitely. Um, our pastor at the time, too, you know, and that's a great resource for anyone to reach out to a pastor if they're struggling. I'm a huge advocate for therapy, I have to say. it's, it's That, too, has been a lifeline for us. And like I say, we're still, uh, you know, going on an as-needed basis now, but it is, it is so important. It, it can just help you sort through so many cobwebs.
0: And I want to understore that. And again, if you or someone you know is dealing with thoughts and feelings right now and you need someone to turn to, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available at 800-273-TALK. That's 800-273-T-A-L-K. And I'd like to thank Melanie Pickett for being with us today. More information, by the way, about her online at melaniespickett.com. Melanie, thanks again so much for sharing your story. 602 on the clock. Let's get you an update on traffic.